Plan your work and work your plan. For many athletes, words like these are scripture. Permanent signposts lining the long road to success. The very act of pursuing a career in sports gives a sense of control, a sense of safety. Just stick to the plan. Good things will follow. That is until life hits you. The kind of life that happens when you're making other plans. Devastating setbacks, seemingly mundane moments, when things change unexpectedly and catch you without looking. Then the first question becomes, what's your next play? From the Players' Tribune, I'm former National Hockey League goaltender Corey Hirsch. And I'm psychiatrist Dr. Diane McIntosh. Welcome to Blindsided. Mental health, sports, and life. This episode contains content that may be difficult to hear. Please check the show notes for more information. Listener discretion is advised. Get the back over the line. Here's the pass. On into the Buffalo zone. Mahar goes to the corner of the pass. Oh, wow. Watch Malarchuk. That's the story right now with the rim. Oh, look at that. Oh, boy. Take the off. That is the oh god! Oh, please take the camera off, but don't even bring it over there, please. Oh my god! Just keep it away. Oh, Oh, terrible! My oh my god! What happened? There was no pain. There was no pain, and then I saw the blood and it was squirting so far, and I went, "Oh my god! I'm dying here in a couple minutes," and that's when I was just preparing for death, you know, because I really thought I was done like dinner called for the chaplain, team chaplain, because I thought, well, I've only got about two minutes. I need to do a lot of repenting in two minutes. (laughs) On this episode of Blindsided, we welcome Clint Malarchuk. Clint is a former National Hockey League goaltender for the Quebec Nordiques, Washington Capitals, and Buffalo Sabres. Most people, however, remember Clint for sustaining one of the worst injuries in the history of sports, where a skate came up and cut a vessel in his neck, and he almost bled out on the ice. The collision led to the severe deterioration of his mental health. But Clint came out of it and is one of the first players to speak up on the issue. His book, The Crazy Game, both helped and inspired a lot of people. He's living proof you can survive and thrive despite hitting the lowest of lows. Here's Clint Malarchuk on Blindsided. Clint, it's so good to see you again. And you talk in a really open way about the chaos that you experienced when you were growing up, that your dad, Mike, was a great hockey dad. That's how you described him. But also he had severe alcoholism. He had a really terrible temper when he was drunk. And you also called your mom, Jean, the toughest, strongest person you know. And you know a lot of tough and strong people but also your best friend. She tried to shield you from some of the impact of the chaos at home. How do you think that your childhood experiences related to that chaos impacted your life? Well, I think it was the beginning of a lot of uh, troubles for me, a lot of issues, anxiety. I struggled in school, first of all. And I think it was because I had so much anxiety and ADD and OCD, all undiagnosed, of course. And so I had all these emotions like bottled up in me. But my freedom was going to the outdoor rink and playing hockey out there. They'd have to chase me home. They'd want to close the rink down and flood it. Um, And I noticed the closer I got to home, the more my anxiety would rise. And, you know, that freedom of being on the ice is gone now. 
I didn't know it at the time as a kid, but now I look back and I think, you know, you're walking home, you don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, it's dark out, it's winter, it's beautiful, but, you know, the closer you get to home, the more that anxiety would rise. You do talk a lot in your book about that early anxiety when you were really young. Can you tell us a little bit about your memories of what anxiety was like as a young person? Oh, yeah. I still get it today. So I don't have to think too far back. Sometimes painful, sometimes physically painful in my stomach. Just the uh, the turmoil where you can't turn your head off and you can't turn your stomach off because your stomach's churning and your mind is not cooperating saying okay don't think about that uh you can't get it out of your head and of course that was the onset probably of ocd you know as a kid did they give you medication or anything back then they just sedated me for two months in the hospital pretty much uh, turned me loose and said good luck mom you get a real anxious kid yeah it's kind of sad but um i remember the kids at school uh because i was gone so long like kelly rudy i grew up with kelly former goalie as well. Mental health advocate too as well. Yeah, he's very involved, yeah. And he was he was told, I don't know who told him, oh, Clint's got ulcers, so he's he's not at school. I don't know if I had ulcers or not, but that was the, uh, the rumor we went with and probably because of the stigma. But as a kid, hockey was it. That's the only time I didn't have anxiety. All the other times I had anxiety. I couldn't go to a movie and just settle down and watch the movie and get lost in the movie, no. I couldn't. So I think I was pretty extreme, like, I don't want to say 24-7, but the time I was on the ice, and I always stress those outdoor rinks that I skated on because you got the winter nights and the northern lights and that crunch in the snow. You know, those things were very, very great memories for me now. But when he was off the ice, that's when things went south. His home life was rough, and when his dad drank, trauma followed. Didn't you say it more so just started after the incident with your dad, the house incident? Yeah. So just go through that story maybe. And just is that kind of the moment where things changed for you? Yeah, we were in Alberta and it was cold, dead of winter, probably 30 below. And uh, this was kind of common that dad wouldn't come home. So mom was waiting in the kitchen and, you know, I was in bed and then I got up and I go in and check and everything. Then I was asleep. It was probably three in the morning and all of a sudden the windows start smashing because mom locked him out because he was so drunk. And uh, so he started smashing windows. And I do vividly remember, this is probably the first big trauma that I had, running out in the kitchen, looking at the floor because I thought it was he was smashing plates or something or throwing plates. And mom was crying at the kitchen table. And um, she goes, it's your dad, he's drunk. The police came and and I remember it was my mom my sister and I, my big brother had gone away to play hockey already. And we had to sit in a the, in the bed, lay in a bed together to keep warm because all the windows were smashed out. That's uh, unbelievable. And, and it's just, the police didn't do anything about your dad or anything? Like, what did they do after that? They said, we'll keep driving by. Oh, my goodness. Well, at least you had one stable parent, your mom, right? And Diana, I, from what I know, it's you have to have one stable parent. I mean, your mom was there for you, Clint. Oh, big time. We became very, very close almost to, now that I know more about psychology and all that, we had a relationship, and Diane might be able to help me with this, the word, the the support that she gave me and I gave her, we depended on each other. It was, in a way, unhealthy. Uh, I'm the child, and I became her support. 
the codependent or what is that? Yeah. And, and what happens is that when someone is facing trauma, like your mother was, and your dad was so unpredictable and she loved and trusted you and didn't trust maybe very many other people, you got pushed into that adult role. And you're right. It's too much for kids to have to manage that because then you start to own your parents' emotions. You want to protect her. And that can lead you to really feel overburdened by that, not because you don't love your mother, but because you're not emotionally prepared yet to manage that. With all that going on, Clint focused even more on hockey. And he started to show signs of becoming an incredible player. If I was going to write a scouting report on when he was playing, I would say that Clint was a guy that wasn't technically sound, but he was a guy that would never give up. So if a, if a puck was going to beat him, I mean, there'd be a second and third and fourth effort to try and stop the puck. Just a guy that fought right to the end and never made it easy on the other team to beat him really is, is how I would describe Clint in a scouting report. He just was a battler, a fighter, and exactly what he is today, what you see, that is Clint. Sometimes it's not pretty, but he gets the job done. You said he wasn't technically sound, Corey, but he called himself a scholar of the game. Mm-hmm. So would he be offended by you saying not technically sound? No, he, he was he was technical, but there comes a point where you have to abandon technique in a, in a sport, right? It's like an NFL player running back on a breakaway run. Eventually, you know, if you see a hole and you got to do something, you got to take it and you got to go, right? Technique goes out the window. I think that's happens with hockey, especially with goaltending too. Like there's points where you got to let go of your technique and you just got to... Find a way to have the puck hit you and not go in the net. That's how I would say that I mean by that. There is a fearlessness to it, but I would say there's fear. But it's you you put up almost a mask to not show anybody else that fear, right? And you just keep pushing forward. You just keep pushing forward. When you're good, everybody wants you. Everybody wants you to play because the goalie is the last spot if you don't have a good goalie like you're not going to win. So now uh, you know your forwards want you to play, your defensemen want you to play, and your talent just keeps pushing you further and further into the train wreck at times. Clint found ice wherever he could. Indoor rinks, outdoor rinks. His talent was undeniable, and Scouts noticed. He signed a contract with the junior team, the Portland Winterhawks, and he left home to pursue his dream of playing in the National Hockey League. So then you went to Portland. You went away for junior hockey like I did. And I remember two months in, I wanted to leave. I just wanted to come back. Like, I just wanted to go back home. What was that like for you? And I, I don't know, it was it different for other players? Because there was guys that were the same as Corey, us. They were, Corey, they were, but they weren't. I mean, uh, I, I don't know how many guys on my team had an abusive alcoholic father yeah. that eventually left. And my mom and I grew a bond so intense that when I do leave home, I'm worried about her. Yeah. I'm worried and I, and I miss her. And I like you, I, I just wanted to quit Yeah, and go home. And I remember the time I call crying all the time because she's the one person, the constant that I could talk to and everything up to this point in my life. And finally she said, Clint, if you really want to come home, you come home instead of saying, no, nope, stay there, stay there. It's your career. Uh, she said, look, the door is always open. And that was huge. Yeah, Because all of a sudden I thought, I can go home. I can quit. And that's where I kind of went, you know, I'm one day at a time almost. So Clint stayed put. He wanted to look strong and prove himself in the Western Hockey League. But back then, it was an unforgiving place. 
Yeah. For Clint, it was a little bit different generation. He played in a generation that was, uh, I mean, there was bench clearing brawls. So even Clint had to know how to fight. He grew up having to, to fight for everything. So going through the ranks and then as a young fella and out on the outdoor rinks, uh, he would have gone to junior hockey where it's a tough, tough world where you're really, that's the route in hockey to try to get to the NHL quicker, right? More kids now are going the school route, but back then junior hockey for him would have been uh, a route that as Canadians, that's the way we would have gone. Can you imagine having your life? You've come from chaos. You've come from what your dad has been like. You really don't have a father figure in your life. And now you're on a bus with 20 other 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20 year olds. Okay. So you're 16, 17 years old. You're not a man. And there's a 20 year old sitting in the seat across from you. Okay. So the mix is like how you learn to be a man in that environment um, is, it's pretty messed up. Uh, I'm not going to lie, you know, and then moving on from there, Clint developed the will to get to the NHL at all costs. That's kind of where I, I saw his career going, but he wasn't healthy from his childhood but he was good. And when you're good, everybody wants you. So his talent and his work ethic were kind of like almost hurting him in a way as development for, as a person, but you just keep getting pushed forward more and more and more you know, into the system because you're good and teams want you. And you got to remember, he already had significant anxiety. By that time, he'd already been hospitalized for his anxiety. And he said they did absolutely nothing. So here's a young man whose brain is not going to be developed for another 10 years, right? Because our brain isn't fully developed on average till we're 25 on a bus with a bunch of other teenagers who's living essentially an external He's presenting himself one way externally and he's completely different on the inside. He's anxious, he's worried, he's fearful, he's immature. You can see that that would be tearing him apart. And like Corey said, he didn't have that safe haven to go home to. Couldn't go anywhere but forward. And if he didn't go to Portland, people would have been wondering why back home, right? They'd be like, why wouldn't you do? Why wouldn't you go? Like, what's wrong with you? You go because the pressure to go is immense. You know, he grew up in a hockey family. So that's probably a big part of why you went it's it's ingrained in us i compare it to texas high school football it's ingrained in people that's what you do as canadians that's what we do you go and you play hockey and you get to the nhl at all costs now this is clint's story there's a lot of great stories out there too and i don't want to make the western hockey league or any of these stories seem like they're uh, bad places to play i had a great experience in Kansas. it got me to where i was clint would probably tell you the same about portland But as far as development as a person who has a mental illness, he needed things in place. He needed support in place. He needed therapists. He needed the team to help him come from his background. But nobody cared about his background back then. Nobody cared about my background, right? All they care about is, can you help the team win and everybody else to further their career? Clint was in Portland for three years. Then, his National Hockey League dream became a reality when he signed with the Quebec Nordiques. He was all of 20 years old. He had to fight to keep his spot in Quebec and was ultimately traded to the Washington Capitals and then to the Buffalo Sabres. And that's when the second trauma happened. 
So Clint, the, the video's out there. It's everywhere. On YouTube, you can see it. You can Google it. I don't know if you've watched it since then or whatever, if you can bring yourself to watch it. But um, there's a player cutting down the left side of the ice, and he's going one-on-one with a defenseman. So you would get aggressive to, to try and you know cut down that angle. And then from there, take me through that of what happened and then what happened next, what you remember about that whole incident. And I guess you could call it a, an accident, really, of epic proportions in a hockey yeah, well, the puck was in the corner on my right side, so it would be the left side for the forward. And uh, the puck came across a pass across the crease, and I went down and pushed across. One of our defensemen was holding up a guy, and he flipped him, and his skates came up and clipped, clipped my uh, my neck. And, and you grab your neck right away, right? I mean, I, I, I remember the video. Yeah, I don't know why, because there was no pain. Wow. There was no pain. And then I saw the blood and it was squirting so far. And I'm like, oh my God, I've, I'm dying here in a couple of minutes. And that's when I was just preparing for death, you know, because I really thought I was done like dinner. Called my mom or I had the trainer call, say I love her. Yeah. I had a guy hold my hand, another trainer. I called for the chaplain, team chaplain. He wasn't there because I wanted him because I thought, well, I've only got about two minutes. I need to do a lot of repenting in two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Well, then the trainer comes out, right? I mean, he runs on the ice. You see the referee grab his arm and then he has, he had some Vietnam training. Yeah. There's a lot of God shots in this why I'm alive. And uh, that's one of them because I don't think a trainer is trained for that. They do now, right? They do now, but back then, you know, and no. he had the experience. He's probably has held a few uh, jugular veins, you know, pressure wise yeah. to save them. You know, and I call those God shots if it wasn't for him. Imagine being a trainer running out and 20,000 people watching you uh, work on this bleeding guy to death. He's bleeding to death. And it's on TV. Well, and back then, like you said, I mean, your your trainer was a guy that sharpened skates, did ultrasounds, had a smoke in his mouth, right? I mean, that was... And you had, on Buffalo, a guy that actually had war training. So did he not... He reaches in and he pinches your... Yeah. I had it at first and he... Then I let it go and it started coming out. He he went in and put the pressure. And then you you told me something once too. If you're down at the other end, you don't make it. Probably not. You're down at the you're down at the Zamboni entrance. They get out on the ice right away. They get you going. And then you talk about getting they cut your jersey and your chest protector. And you and you were pissed. Yeah, they cut all my equipment off. Here I am facing death and I'm going, No, don't cut my crap off. Just work this chest protector <laughs> in. Good Lord. So then they take you to the hospital. And then at what point did you realize that you were going to be okay? Um, I think I didn't. Or were you worried right all the way through? I, I was pretty pumped. Uh, then they they did the surgery and then I came out of surgery. That's when I thought, okay, I'm alive. I woke up. So I guess I'm here. Yeah. And then what about, what about the guys on the team? What about the guy that pushed the player into you? Like those guys never had trauma therapy either, but that must have been traumatic to see it. Oh, like, yeah. there, there was guys, uh, you know, I don't want to name names, but in the locker room, because the game was delayed, that one guy, he had lost his dad in a traumatic experience and he was hitting his head against the wall. Um, you know, there was all these things going on. Oh. And um, yeah, so anyways, you know, it's, it's just trauma. And the interesting thing is, when that happened, I was not offered any counseling or PTSD or anything like that. Yeah. In fact, the story is the guy that saved my the trainer, we went out and stood in front of the net in our street clothes because I wasn't playing yet. Hey, we look around. He goes, well, this is where it happened. Yep. If you followed sports in Canada, 
And especially if you followed hockey, you remember exactly where you were when you heard what happened to Clint. That's how monumental a moment it was for people. I believe I was playing junior hockey and we all knew that that was something that could happen, but you just don't think of it. And it was scary because I'm a goalie and I remember watching it and just in horror and then, and then try not to watch it. Right. But, but when you see it happen to someone else, you're all like, ah, that's not going to happen to me. I never wore a neck guard. Uh, I didn't like how it felt around my neck. So I was with the New York Rangers at a training camp and it, I got a cut across my Adam's apple. It was four stitches. So it, it was that close. And then after that, I was like, uh, I better put on a neck guard or something. But as far as like, you just knew the risk, like you, you knew the risks of it. But as far as with, with Clint and watching that, it was horrific. And then you start to think 20 men, 40 men on the ice, 20 on each team. And you all have sharpened knives on your feet. Like, what could go wrong, right? I watched that. I, I remember watching that. And I remember uh, also watching soccer. My daughter was a soccer player and saying, I remember a guy who had his neck cut and wanted to come back after. And he was saying, don't cut my jersey. I'm coming back for the third period. And I was just like... That's the mentality. Blown away at... Yeah. People get all their teeth kicked out. They want to come in on, on the third period. My God. That's learned from the time you're 12 years old. It really is. My dad, you don't you don't lay on the ice, right? You're hurt. You get up. Are you hurt or are you injured? You know, unless you're two steps away from death, you don't lay on the ice. Ten days later, Clint skated back onto the ice. Obviously, his physical injuries hadn't had time to heal. But even more than that, his mind was a mess. They put me on Haldol. Haldol is like a sedative, okay? Oh, my goodness, yeah. Doc, Doc, what is Haldol? You explain it first. Well, Haldol is an old medication. And the fact that, uh, you know, some people are still using that as a first-line treatment today, I can tell you I've never had a physician or their child walk into my office and say, I'll have the Haldol. They want the new (laughs) treatments. They want the best treatments. And what brings value with the new treatments is reduced side effects. Every brain is an individual brain. Everyone needs their own treatment that works for them personally. And there's the right one for everyone. And sometimes the older treatments actually work best for some individuals. But what the value is of the newer treatments usually is better tolerability, that people don't have the side effects that they used to have. And so Haldol would certainly not be a choice that I would make now, for sure. I guess what I'm saying is, it was around 1990, And they put me on Haldol, which, like you said, you explain what it is. It might be okay, but not when you're trying to stop a hundred mile an hour (laughs) slap shot. I was like freaking stoned. Mercifully, we have new medication now. So that was one of the first, one of the older, what are called antipsychotic medications that we often use also to treat depression. Not Haldol, but that class of medications. And now we have some new ones. So those older ones I avoid at all costs because they have really significant side effects. It doesn't mean that the newer ones don't have side effects either. They may, but not the severe ones that he described. So the newer medications in that class can uh, be less likely to make people too sleepy, can really be effective for treating depression and anxiety. 
But what we used to do with these older medications was just give too high doses and cause significant side effects without really thinking about the consequences. And thankfully, most psychiatrists are taking a very different approach to using medications, which are necessary for some people, not for everyone. But if you've got a, a severe mental illness, medications can be life-saving. Mm -hmm. My job is to make sure we pick the right medication for the right individual. And sometimes that takes a lot of work because because all of these medications, all antidepressants, for instance, work, but they don't work for every brain. And so that's why we have to have a number of choices available and try different ones till we find the right one for the right person. Question that I get a lot from a lot of athletes are, is, is that, well, if I go on medication, it's going to change my game or it's going to make me uh, worse or whatever. And what I say to that is there are medications out there that will not affect your game at all. You'll actually be a better player because you'll sleep better, you'll train better, you'll be able to eat finally. Um, so I tell athletes to not be afraid of taking medications, but and please, because uh, if you need it, you need it. And there's great medications out there that you can play sports on and be a better athlete. The biggest thing that I was always worried about, and Clint touched on it too, was is that your coach and your GM and the mental toughness and all that would think, I can't win with a goalie that's got a mental illness because that means mentally weak, right? And I'm here to win a Stanley Cup. So get rid of them. Find me a goalie that doesn't have a mental illness, right? And we're still in that phase in life where if you have two goalies, one has OCD and one doesn't, but they're both the same level. They're both the same great goalies. They have the same stats, same numbers, same amount of wins, same everything. I guarantee you the coach is going to pick the kid without OCD, right? Like, so that's where there's still a problem. It shouldn't be that way. It should be, you choose the best one or, or whatever, but yeah, you don't want to show that to your teammates and you didn't want to show it to your, because they thought they couldn't win with you. And you don't want to be seen as a guy in sports that you can't win with. Corey, to that point, show me someone tougher more ability to win than Clint. Enough, right? Honestly, here's a man with a serious mental illness who is driven, the hardest worker on the team, more resilient than anyone mm -hmm. I could ever imagine. Mental illness does not mean mentally weak. It doesn't mean that you don't have a drive to win. But medication is life-saving when appropriate. And this is, it's performance enhancing because you're able to actually work to your full potential, perform to your full level because you're not being held back by depression, by anxiety, because you're able to actually function again fully. So these are not performance-enhancing drugs in the sports world, but they are performance-enhancing drugs in the fact that you'll be able to live to your full potential because you're taking the medication that manages your symptoms appropriately. But Clint was never the same on the ice. Who would be? He struggled to find help. Well, first of all, I was finally diagnosed after the injury because I didn't sleep. I was going through, I took some painkillers, extra painkillers to sleep and I had a reaction. My heart stopped. So there's the other time I almost died. And in the hospital, they thought it was a suicide attempt. I said, no, no. Uh, what's going on? They said, and I said, well, I, I haven't slept in 10 days. You know, I got this anxiety. I can't leave the house. I'm getting these terrible nightmares. And that was the first time. I'm 27, 28 years old. That was the first time I, I got diagnosed with OCD, depression, anxiety, panic attacks. And so that was the first time I started to really look into different, you know, psychologists, the counselors, and everything. 
So it was a journey and it was a tough journey. It took me probably two and a half years to get the right medication. And it changed my life, changed my effing life. You know, I look back at OCD now and it is, um, you lose the ability to rationalize things. Yeah. In your, in your head, you're going, I know, I know, I know. Yeah. But it doesn't click. The receptors or whatever, it just doesn't. So that's why we get into the anxiety, into this cycle going over and over because we just can't turn it off. We can't say, yeah. you, know, you know what, that's a bunch of crap. You know, like a snake, right? I mean, it slithers and it finds different. So it's it's a constant epic battle uh, in your own brain, and it's really difficult sometimes to decipher the truth from that. And I don't know if I'll ever ever really get you know rid of mine, but with medications, it's been manageable. Yeah, that's what OCD does. It changes, it morphs. So people will start with one thing, and then it'll move to something else. But what you just said, Clint, is so common, which is people have insight. They recognize this is crazy. Why am I thinking this? I know this isn't true, but my brain keeps telling me, and it won't stop. And you're trying to push the thoughts away. And then, as Corey said, I've gotten past this. I this my brain's not telling me this anymore. Now it's telling me this. Yeah. And so it feels like you're in a constant battle over your brain. I would say with OCD, in my experience, especially when I was playing at the high level and everything, my OCD would be way worse with stress. When stress was coming up, whether it's a game or uh, somebody's coming to visit or, you know, but that's when my OCD would go over the top and I needed everything just perfect to play that game. And that stress and that anxiety because you got something stressful going on and you're, you're going to play a hockey game in the NHL. Yeah. And it really, that's when the, the thoughts, the ruminations, all those things, uh, you can't turn it off. Clint brings this up, like everything has to be perfect, right? But there's a lot of people out there that aren't, don't have the mental illness that are probably listening to this wondering, well, what do I do for somebody like that? Right? Like, what do I do in a situation like that where your OCD's fired up or mine? And, you know, you're walking on eggshells around the person. How do people handle stuff like that? Like, because I know it affected the people around me immensely until I got treated. Clint played several more years in the National Hockey League. He battled in the minor leagues, trying to extend his career as long as he could. He ended up becoming the goaltending coach of the Florida Panthers. And that's where he met his wife, Joni. She was the, uh, skating director at that arena figure skating and all that and uh our practice arena and that's where we met and you know it sounds corny the hockey player meets the ice princess clint proposed she said yes life should have been good but it wasn't clint still needed help yeah i had suicidal thoughts for sure i was self-medicating with beer like lots of beer and that's very normal with people that are struggling with mental illness. They reach for a beer or a drug or something because it gives them relief, even temporary. And then they develop the addiction part. One day, it all came to a head at their ranch. Joni was staying with friends. So to occupy his time, Clint drank beer. Then he took out a gun. I was shooting targets behind the barn. And Joni didn't come home that night, so I was really upset about that because I'm obsessive about relationships and stuff like that. Eventually, Joni returned home. She found Clint sitting next to the tack shed with that gun. He looked up at her. I said, you know what I feel like doing? 
And I picked up the gun and I put it under my chin and shot. And, uh, you know, I heard, I heard it go off. So I go, there's a bullet in there. Why am I still here? It was uh, definitely a selfish thing that I did because I didn't lose consciousness. And I looked right at her and said, see what you made me do. It's incredible that Clint survived yet again. He begged his wife not to call the police because it would be public. It would be out there in the news that Clint had taken a gun and tried to end his own life. But he had no choice. He needed medical help. He went to the hospital. They treated his wounds. And from there, he went right into rehab. And it was there he finally had the time to repair himself. The hospital treated him for a host of mental health issues, which included severe PTSD. The reality is I treated PTSD for my entire career, and I have never seen a patient who had one traumatic event. It was actually most common that someone experienced something relatively minor. You know, they were in a fender bender and you know, maybe had a little whiplash or something, and they had full-on PTSD. And, you know, their family doctor would call me and say, I don't get it. Like, this person seemed okay, but they meet all the symptoms for PTSD, yet their accident was not life-threatening. They don't meet the criteria. And I will tell you, to a person, those individuals that I have met, when you look in their background, they had childhood sexual abuse. One or both of their parents died in a fiery crash. You know, some kind of trauma that they managed early on To me, PTSD, traumatic illnesses, are illnesses of accumulation. And it's often that there's a straw that broke the camel's back kind of phenomena. And sometimes it's a really relatively minor thing that sets someone up for full PTSD. When you look back, they have other trauma in their life. I would say almost never that I've met someone that had one traumatic event that led to PTSD. Before he goes to shoot himself, he's like, look what you made me do, right? The blame. Uh, and he even admits, and I've talked to him several times, um, of how awful that was. But that's the headspace that he was in at that time. You know, he was just lashing outward. I've heard that with people that are in that state, that there's there's just, it's like there's a force field over their brain. And nothing positive gets in. And it's just very hard to get somebody out of that thought process. And it just, that whole scene of him just, you know, and the fact that he's still alive and then after that realizes, well, I must be still be here for a reason and he changed his life. And it's just such a incredible story that could have gone the other way. But as far as OCD goes, it can make you believe just about anything if you're undiagnosed and untreated. And that's where it can get really dangerous. And it sounds like with Clint, um, you know, that's where it got dangerous for him. Diane, you've treated OCD many times before with lots of different patients. And is there something to Clint and I both having that form of OCD and looking for, you know, I know a lot of professional athletes like this, actually, that are are very similar and not the OCD part, but that we latch onto one stable partner, right? Because everything in our life is so chaotic over here. We need that stable partner over here. I want to be very careful not to speak specifically about Clint on this because we didn't really get into the details about his experience. So we should just take broad strokes here and say that there are a whole lot of reasons why people get into the situation that he was in. And some of it could be related to being depressed and his brain lying to him. Mm -hmm. She doesn't love me. She doesn't care. Nobody loves me. I'm not lovable. I'm worthless. I'm hopeless. It could be related to his personality, right? And there's a, a fair degree, 
Corey helped me out here of narcissism in being a superstar. Let's use the word ego instead of narcissism. How's that? Ego. Sound? Okay. <laughs> yeah. about, there's a lot. There's of a ego fair in. amount of ego. Yes. Right. We know that this suicide attempt that he made, which was remarkable, that he did not die. It appeared very sudden, an impulsive move, but that's not something that someone who wasn't thinking about it before and just felt completely hopeless would not do. And so it was a culmination of hopelessness, worthlessness, all coming together, maybe a shock to his ego that she didn't come home, wanting to cause harm because he's in so much pain. I'm going to make someone else be in pain that led to that pulling of the trigger. And the alcohol, right? I mean, that's a big part of it. You, you lose all your kind of your your inhibitions or your your lack of self awareness when you're drinking that amount of alcohol. Yep. And you know, not all, all alcoholics are, are suicidal, but if you know somebody that is drinking out there like that, um, that's really something that you know you really have to be aware of because uh, someone that's in that much pain, drinking that much, has probably already been thinking about going down that path. The highest risk groups, Corey, to your point, are mm-hmm. men over the age of 45, 50, so older men mm-hmm. who have a, a substance abuse issue, usually alcohol, along with a mental illness. You don't have to be mentally ill to choose suicide. That is a, a, a false belief. But most of the time, there is a mental illness involved and substance abuse certainly reduces that inhibition. And so older males are at the greatest risk for completed suicide. Diane, I'll throw this back to you in the sense that Clint, that much trauma and what he went through, could that have been prevented early in his youth and childhood? Like if there would have been an earlier intervention, like could he have changed that story of of what happened with the suicide? I'm always very cautious about, you know, had this been different, maybe. But what I am comfortable saying is that Clint had a really rough childhood. And we know that experiencing childhood trauma, and that could be a really awful divorce that your parents are pulling you into and and getting you to take sides or the loss of a parent early on, certainly abuse, physical, sexual, emotional abuse, but even chaos and neglect. We know all of those things are correlated with later life mental illness, with depression, with anxiety, with a heightened suicide risk. The most important job in the world is to be a good parent. It protects your children. Even if you yourself have mental illness, creating a non-chaotic, loving, nurturing environment. I'm not wanting parents to be snowplow parents here. Kids have to have life experience, right? They have to feel hurt sometimes. It's important because it shows them that you can feel hurt and move on. Parents shouldn't hide things from them as far as, you know, if you lose your job or you're going through a rough time because this teaches your kids resilience, that you can make your way through and be okay. After cheating death twice, once in the crease and once self-inflicted at his own home, Clint felt he survived because he must have a higher purpose and he wanted to help people. So in 2014, Clint released his autobiography, A Crazy Game. It made the bestseller list in Canada. That book helped a lot of people, including me. I think anybody can relate to his stories, the feelings, the thoughts, the despair, and just not really having any hope at the time. He did have one blessing after all that happened. His wife, Joni. She doesn't talk much about the trauma, and I don't blame her. She decided to stay with him. She's his rock. 
you know, when I got out of uh, treatment, we went to counseling together, apart, and marriage counseling. And we worked really hard. And it kind of paid off, you know. So she doesn't want to talk about the trauma, the actual event, but she's okay to talk about other things that are important to be able to pull your your relationship closer together to be stronger. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just the trauma stuff, I think, that she just... Uh, She'll start breaking down and, you know, rather doing it through a therapist, uh, which I, I wish she would. Uh, she's just pushing through tough and tough, tough girl. I'm just throwing this out there, Clint, but some people feel like I've managed that trauma. I've kept it in a, I've got it in a place in my head where it's not in coming up all the time. And yep. that for some people is how they manage. And as long as it's not controlling their life every day, I guess I, I want to make the point that not everyone has the same journey as we've already gone through and that some people feel like I've got that contained. I don't need to continue to process it where other people like yourself have found it invaluable. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I need to do that. And, you know, I've seen many, many counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists uh, through my journey. And, um, you know, Corey even touched on it. Not everybody is the same as far as counseling or, or, you know, once I nailed the right doctor, man, it was changed my life, changed my life. So Clint, I know that everyone is on a personal journey when they're dealing with their mental health and, you know, it's highly individual, but you did find your way to sobriety and you talk about having more peace in your life. What did you need? What needed to happen for you to be able to find your journey? Well, I think, I think first of all, the right medication was very important finding my spirituality, learning tools like meditation, even when now I get this insomnia. And I tell you, it's insomnia where I'll sleep one hour a night for a week. And so what I do is I'll meditate. And it seems like even though I don't fall asleep, I get the rest that I need. And so I've got tools, counseling, of course. I work out every morning uh, and that really helps me. I wake up anxious. I wake up depressed. And once I get that workout in, I roll, I roll pretty good. I roll pretty good. Oh, I wish. I, and I'm trying as hard as I can. Why is it so hard for someone like me to exercise? I know I need it. I'm so much better when I have it. And Diane, is that my ADD? Is that why I just, I can't bring myself to, is that part of it? It certainly can be. I mean, you are like almost every other human being on the face of the earth. So it could be normal that you just find it hard to get going on that, to get motivated. But to Clint's point, exercise is a drug. Yeah. And you're living it right now that, you know, there are all kinds of options we have and not everyone requires medication. Some people really need it and it's life-saving. Talk therapy has so much evidence, but there are a lot of other things. And you brought up a number of them, Clint, when you spoke. Faith for some people is healing. Exercise grows brain cells. It is a treatment for depression and certainly can protect you from your anxiety and depression if you're suffering from it. Mindfulness, you also brought up. Having pets, there are all kinds of ways to approach this, but what you're doing, Clint, is really, I think, the best way, which is finding out what's worked for you and using multiple options to help to keep yourself as well as you can be. Yeah, I've got a list. I've got a daily list that I try to follow. And uh, med- meditation is obviously one. Take my medication, work out counseling if I need it, or call somebody that uh, I love and can relate to, and they relate to me. Um, so you got your support. 
But I, I think the biggest, biggest life changer for me, and it, it happened when I wrote my book, was now I can be of service. And that is... That's so awesome, isn't it? it it's like, a, it's the biggest thing. I always thought I was mentally weak. Even when I went to the NHL, I was mentally weak because I struggled with all this anxiety and depression and everything, and, and not telling anybody, of course. And now I look back and I go, you know what? I must have been really mentally tough. So Diane, we've talked about Clint's story a ton. There's so much and so much to learn from it and from him. I'm just wondering from a clinical perspective, what's important for us to understand about it? Like what are the takeaways for us and for people out there that will help them in their own lives? Every mental illness is biopsychosocial. There are biological factors, psychological factors, and social factors behind them. Biological means things like genes and hormones and brain chemicals. Psychological means your personality, as we mentioned earlier, your temperament, how you deal with stress, whether you're a more vulnerable or more resilient kind of person. And we're all a little different when we pop out of the womb. And then social means what's happening in your life from a financial perspective, from a relationship perspective. Are you in the middle of a divorce? All those things. So all of those come together. It's not just mom's fault. There's all kinds of different reasons why people become ill. What we do know is that the earlier a mental illness starts, the rapidity by which it starts, how quickly it comes on, those are real signals that this is a more serious course of mental illness. I would say Clint had a a more troubling course because he had very early anxiety. He actually was hospitalized quite young. And then the OCD symptoms started coming on around the same time, and they were getting more and more severe over time. It just shows what a resilient fellow he was, that he had all that going on and all the chaos at home, yet ended up in the NHL. So to me, This is a story of incredible resilience and strength of character and drive. And yet so many people would look at him as weak because of the mental illness, whereas in fact, he shows incredible strength in being able to get through all that. You know, lastly, Clint, I want to talk to you. You've got a great initiative that uh, you're trying to do for professional athletes and people, and that is your dream is to build a ranch. Uh, you know, for, for mental health, for a lot of people uh, and a lot of former professional athletes. And how did this come about and, and how do you see that dream coming together? Well, uh, Barry Beck got a hold of me and asked me if I'd be, you know, interested in helping out. And I said, sure. And it was to help out veteran, uh, veteran hockey players and veterans, in fact, military veterans that are suffering with PTSD, with the CTE and the headaches and the depression that goes with CTE and, and the suicides. Yeah. So w- what we're doing is we're, we're going to build this ranch and players can come there and heal. They can Love heal. It. And uh, we're going to have animals and, you know, psychologists and psychiatrists and all the rest of it. But, you know, there's going to be horseback riding, fishing, kayaking, things like that. That uh, And they'll have the camaraderie and, you know, we want to make it a safe environment for them where they can come for a week or a month or two months and, and just heal. No, sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> there is only one Clint Malarchuk. There are not a lot of Clint Malarchuks out there, all right? <laughs> the world could handle it. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I love you like my own brother, son, dad, whatever you want to, you know, whatever you want to be, you can be that. But thanks so much for okay. today. It's uh, inspiring and, and opening up and being vulnerable. And uh, I love you, brother, like uh, like nobody else. And we'll chat soon. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Love you guys. Bye.